I was a little bit nervous preparing for this message today. I know there are, I, I don't know how many reasons to, to be nervous when you're preparing this kind of a message. The first reason I should, I should add it is it because this is a sermon that I'm preaching uh, in the presence of our new rector. And so that, honestly, uh, that's a little bit nerve-wracking nerve for me. It's also a sermon that I was expecting to have to preach in front of my wife. And while I have preached on this passage numerous times, this passage from Ephesians, um, I don't remember the last time that I had to preach it in front of my wife. And if there's someone that can call you out on the falsehoods that you're telling about this passage, it is your spouse. Like, let's be honest. But my wife is not feeling so well today, so I have been spared that. Then again, she might listen to the recording, so I still have to be careful about what I'm about to say. But it's more than that. And it's more than simply the fact that as we listen to it, I think many of us, we started wincing and cringing because these are difficult words to be able to say in public when we come to passages like this. But I think it goes deeper because what this passage is treating of is what the Anglican theologian uh, from the mid 20th century, Austin Farah, would have described as a revealed image. That is, it's this passage is dealing with a picture of a man and a woman united in marriage that we can trace from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And Austin Farah has argued that this is the way that God often speaks to us. He reveals himself to us and he allows his word to ferment in our lives. That is, you know, for those of you who are into sourdough starters and that, those kinds of things, you introduce, you inoculate something into a batch of, of dough or milk or, you know, to make yogurt or whatever it is. But gradually, the little things inside of it, you can't see them, but they begin to ferment and transform one thing into another. Well, that's what these images do in Scripture. This is not the only image. You could say that the image of a barren woman who, after so many years of being childless, brings forth her offspring is one of those images poignantly characterizing Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. We can point to others, but this image of marriage is one that is embedded in creation itself. That's why we took time today to read from Genesis chapter 2. Because regardless of how you view these opening chapters of Genesis, God intended to reveal to us something not just about how the world came into being, but about something about our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. Genesis 2, in the verses that we read, is the very first time since the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, where God brings things together that formerly he had divided, right? God initially divides the light from the dark. He then divides the waters from below from the waters from above. He divides the sea and the land. He divides all of these different creatures into their various kinds. But here in Genesis 2, we find something happen that having separated the man and the woman, having taken out the rib from Adam, what does he do? He brings them back together. And the two become one flesh. And two whole chapters of division and separation, differentiation, suddenly an image of union comes into the foreground. As a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And I think God wanted the readers, he 
wanted us to understand that this is his intention from the very beginning. From the very beginning, having brought creation into being, a kind of differentiation, a kind of distinguishing act, his goal was to bring himself and creation once again together and to be united to his creation. We see this in the history of Israel. As God brings Israel out of Egypt, and what does he do there at Mount Sinai? He marries this people. They become his bride, as the prophets would later say. He spread his wing. He spread the corner of his garment over them. And Israel, the daughter of Zion, becomes the bride of God. Now she is an intensely faithless bride, as the prophets also make clear. She turns her back on her beloved again and again and again. And again and again and again, God comes looking for his bride. He comes looking for that, for that apple of his eye that he has loved and would do anything for, and yet who continually turns her face away from him. And yet, as he promises in Hosea, and yet, even after all of that, he was going to find her, and she who was faithless, he is going to remarry. This is the image that continues through the New Testament until we get to the end of the book of Revelation. And what do we see? We see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the people of God. And how is this people of God prepared? As a bride, ready for her bridegroom. And it's almost like Jesus had this image already in mind as he told his people that the kingdom of heaven is going to be like what? like a wedding feast, to which everyone is invited. And yet, although many are called, few are chosen. So with this heap of a biblical image, Paul then comes and he says, husbands, wives, people in the household of God, let's talk. Let's take this image and let's talk about marriage. That's not what I'm going to do today. Because we're in the middle of a sermon series, not on marriage, but on the church. We've gone through Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and now we're in Ephesians 5. My goal today is to do the opposite of what Paul is doing. Paul takes this relationship between Christ and the church, which is the fulfillment of this biblical image of marriage, that it goes from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to Revelation chapter 21. Paul takes that image and he then applies it to the marriage situation that the Romans would have encountered. I say Romans, the Ephesians, but, you know, we're talking about Greco-Roman society. That they would have encountered in the typical Greco-Roman structure of a household. Where you have a paterfamilias, you have a head of the household who has his wife, they have children, they have freeborn children, and they also have slaves who accompany them in the house and the management and running of this house. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, based on who Jesus is and based on what the gospel is and based on who we are as the church, this is how this household needs to function. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slave and master. And key to this entire operation is that primordial image of husband and wife because there is a built-in obsolescence to the relationship between parent and child. Children grow up. And there is an extremity in the example of slave and master, a barbarity, even in the ancient world. You can see Paul chafing against this as he's writing to Philemon. This is the limit case of how far you can stretch the principles of the gospel living in community as Christians together. 
And yet there are still principles to be learned. But marriage is this image that has, was from the beginning and continues to the end. Now, I said we're going to do the opposite of, that, of this today. Today, what I would like to do is I would take, like to take the idea of husband and wife and apply it to the church. That is, I'd like to work backwards from what Paul was doing. Because I believe that we have something to learn about what it means for us to be the church from what it means to be husband and wife. Now, the first thing that I would like to do, and I believe that this is central to the passage, so central that in your notes today, I actually spelled it out. I didn't even put it for you to write down or fill in the blank. I just put it for you right there. Let me explain. The structural center of, of this passage, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, actually can be easily found because the whole passage is structured in what we sometimes call a chiasm. Now, that is a fancy biblical studies word for a passage in an ancient text where the very beginning and the very end have similar words or themes. And then you move a little bit inward from the beginning and the end, and they have the same theme, right? And so you just kind of work your way in. And there are actually, in this passage, seven or eight levels where Paul gradually gets closer and closer and closer to the center and the heart of what he's talking about. And the very center and heart of this is in verse, I think it's 25, right? Verse 25, where Paul makes clear that the one who loves his wife loves himself. That is, Paul wants his readers to understand that the strength of the union between husband and wife is so strong that when a husband loves his wife, he is not loving an other. He is loving his very self, that they become one flesh to such a degree that it's not even as though the, you know, the left hand is there with the right hand. They are one reality. And so as you serve your wife, you are serving yourself. If you despise your wife, you are despising yourself. And Paul even says, no one even hated their own body. They take care of it. But what are we to expect from a husband for a wife? We are to expect them to love their wife as they love themselves. And the big analogy that he has for this is as Christ loved the church. But it is this degree of union that I think we should expect to see between us and Christ and the church, and consequently between one another. I love the way that Bishop Stephen Andrews put it last week. The way for us to get close to one another as members and often estranged members of the body of Christ is by each of us not just drawing close to one another, but drawing close to Christ. That is, the closer our relationship with him is, we all are drawing close to him. That is going to draw us close together and with one another. But I think one of the things and one of the crucial questions that is triggered by our reading of this passage, the way that we often hear this, is that we, especially as modern people, chafe under the idea of these asymmetrical relationships. That is, that Paul seems to have different words for the husbands and different words for the wives. Now, I'm not going to address that immediately. I will say that I want you to remember that in a Greco-Roman society, wives had very few rights compared to their husbands. They have very few, very uh, much, much restricted access to property. They have much restricted access to legal standing. And most of what Paul says is not directed to the wives. It is directed to the husbands and puts on them the burden of acting like Christ towards their wives. I just put, say that right there for now. 
But the asymmetrical character, the differential between what he says to husbands and wives, I would like to unpack that a little bit with respect to Christ and the church. We'll come back and talk about husbands and wives at the very end, very briefly. But let's think about what it means for Jesus to be the bridegroom in relationship to his bride, what it means for the bride to be in relationship to the bridegroom, and how this strengthens our understanding of the union between the two. If you turn over on the other page, I'm going to continue the outline on the other side. Let me make my first point, and that is that Christ as the bridegroom is the head of his bride. Paul says this up front, doesn't he? He says, now, Christ is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head of his wife. And here, I want you to just kind of mentally bracket out everything that you have heard about headship in churches that you've been a part of before or discussions that you've had before i want us to think about what this means for paul and ephesians because paul in ephesians has a very definite idea of what it means for christ to be the head of the church a few weeks ago we were looking in ephesians 1 at what he says about christ being the head of the church who is the fullness of him who fills all things headship for paul in chapter 1 indicates an infilling that is what the head begins the whole rest of the body carries on and takes over and begins to express he makes this even more clear and more certain in chapter 4 as he's talking about the body because the whole point of christ being the head of the body is that the whole body is knit together becomes full becomes mature grows up into the whole person that god intended this body to be we see this in the sense that Adam was put to sleep and God, taking the rib out of him, turns him into the source, the head of his wife. But the wife then is the fullness of who he is as a human being. She is the ultimate expression of it. She is humanity 2.0 and better, frankly, gentlemen. Right? But she is the fullness of what God was intending from this marital union in the beginning. Christ as the head of his bride, then, is a term not of superiority in the first degree. It is a term of unity and union, and that union existing because he is the head. That is, without him as the head, there wouldn't be no body, there would be no bride. And yet, the emphasis is not on that primacy. The emphasis is on the union and the unity that the bride and the bridegroom have been called to have. Now, what does this mean for Paul? In the first instance, it is that he, as the bridegroom, Jesus gives to the church his identity. When Paul says that he is the head of the, of the church, he then immediately clarifies and says, and he is its savior. That is, Paul is indicating that Jesus is the one who comes in and gives health, gives salvation, gives a new adoption and standing, and all the things that we like to talk about, justification, uh, sanctification. He is the one, in other words, that comes and says, you are mine, and you are here with all of the rights and responsibilities that I myself have had. We, as one flesh, one entity, now take on things together. We see this in our own marriage service, when the rings are exchanged, right? And I'm going to be honest, I never remember the new modern language uh, edition. I, I remember all the old English, right? You know, when you put that ring on your wife's finger, 
Traditionally, what, was, what did you say? With this ring, I thee, I thee wed. With my body, I thee, I thee worship. Thank you, Robin. And with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, these were the words that I said to my wife, and, you know, we're a modern couple, so she also said them to me. But back in the day when women didn't really own property, legally speaking, this was a way of a husband saying, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours. And that's how the modern language liturgies usually reflect it. Everything that I am and everything that I have is now passed on to you because my identity, who I am, is now yours. You have every legal standing that I do. And this counts before man, this counts before God, this counts before the angels, this counts in every respect, that Jesus and his wife now are one. Now this, how does this come about? How does this oneness, how does, how does this standing come about? Paul then goes on to say that it is because Jesus has done what? He has loved his bride and has given himself for her. In other words, Jesus gives the church his love. To love someone is to give oneself to them, to not hold back. The purest expression of this, I'm going to be honest, it's not a marriage. Maybe it should be. But I have gotten to know this purest form of love, having watched my wife turn into a mother. Because my wife would do anything for those kids. She wouldn't do anything for me. I mean, maybe she would. But I'm going to be honest, like most days, if it's a question, is David going to eat first or are the kids going to eat first? Guess who gets to eat first? It's the kids. And she eats half the time, most of the time, she eats last. It's incredible how much she is willing to lay down her life for these children. She would do literally anything for them. That is love, to give yourself entirely to someone else. And what does Jesus do? He gives himself. And John makes this clear. What? No greater love has any man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. Part of John's point is not only that we should lay down our lives for another, but someone has laid down his life for us by going to the cross, by enduring it, by suffering it, by going through its pangs, by being buried, by giving literally everything that he was and everything that he had in order so that we, having become the righteousness of God in him, having been justified by his resurrection, may live eternally with God in heaven and with one another here on earth. That we have a new life and a new love and a new relationship because of him, because he was willing to do everything to be with us and to be one with us and to give his life to us. And this leads Paul then to say that this is what Jesus does with us as a husband is supposed to do with his wife. The husband is supposed to nourish and cherish his wife. That is not only simply give her the legal declaration that she belongs to him and make sure that she has his property and that she has his titles, but what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to take care of her and make sure that she's okay. He's supposed to make sure that she has enough to eat, that she's comfortable, that she is fulfilled. He is supposed to make sure that everything that she needs and everything that is best important for her life, he is providing for her. And this is what Jesus continually does, right? 
He comes to us and he nourishes us. He not only gives us his love, but Jesus gives the church his life. And he does so, Paul says, by doing what? Through the washing with the word. This is how most of us experience Jesus Christ and the unity of his love. It is through the ministration of his word, the preaching of his word, the reading of his word, that we get to know him in the holy scriptures and in the way in which it is shared from one person to another and hopefully from preachers like me. But it is also known sacramentally through the baptism which we share in Jesus Christ, through a table which is set before us in the presence of our enemies, and yet he comes and he anoints our head with oil and our cup runs over. Jesus makes himself present in the church. And having said that I am the resurrection and I am the life, he says, and I give my life for the life of the world. And I give my life to you because whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life because he is the life. He, as his husband, comes and he tells us, as you could imagine a, a bridegroom does right there at the altar, this is my body. I give it to you. This is who I am. I give it to you. I lay it all down for you. Not just once for all upon the cross. Every day and every minute, I am going to be your life. This is what it means for us to belong to him. For us to be his bride. One of my favorite little books, and I know I'm going to sound like a dork here. One of my favorite little books is The Little Prince. Uh, I, we have enough French speakers. I'm not going to try and attempt the French title of that because I'm going to sound terrible. One of the great little scenes in that book is that the little prince from the asteroid who's sort of innocent and charming and wants to figure out what's going on with the rose and, and whatnot, he starts to go around, visit all the other asteroids and planets, and he eventually ends up talking to you know, a businessman who believes that he owns the stars because he can count, number, and name every single one of them. And eventually the little prince gets frustrated and he says, but how can you own the stars? He says, you're of no use to them. You see, the little prince defined ownership, what we might call regenerative uh, in case, not by how much you can control something, but of what kind of use you are to it. And the degree to which we belong to Jesus is the degree to which he has been willing to serve to lay down his life, to be our savior, to be our head, to be the one in whom we have the source of life and the continuance of life and the future of life, the one who is willing to do everything and anything to be with us, to be the bridegroom, which is the archetype of what this image, this living image, this fermenting image through all of history was always intended to be and do. Now on the flip side, what does that mean for us as the bridegroom? This is one of the great ironies. I'm speaking to a mixed group of people, both men and women. We are all feminine in this room when it comes to being the bridegroom, or to being the bride, to his bridegroom. We come into this marital union, and honestly, we do not bring much. Unlike Jesus, who comes and bring us, brings us everything that he is and everything that he has, that is the entire universe, and God himself. We come with our sins. <laughs> with our weaknesses and our failings, and yet he loves us and cherishes us. So what does it mean for us then to be the bride? Well, I think it's interesting because the way that Paul talks about it is that the bride then becomes the reflection and the mirror of the bridegroom. 
she becomes like her groom. And in fact, this is, I think, one way of diffusing some of the language that often troubles us in this passage. The bride is called to be like her bridegroom. He, she is called to become one with him, which means that she is to become the picture of him. The first thing that we could point out is that she moves with reverence. The word could be translated fear in some cases, in some cases respect, but the idea is that there is a reverence. And we know that it, Paul doesn't tell wives, fear your husbands, be afraid of them. That's not what Paul is telling wives to do, because the Bible is very clear, perfect love casts out all fear. And if we are not supposed to be afraid Christ himself as our groom, because his love is perfect, is being made perfect in us, how are we supposed to fear anyone else in this life? No. He does say, wives, you need to respect your husbands. You need to reverence your husbands. That is, to the extent to which he is serving you and putting you first. He is laying down his life and doing all the things that we've talked about Jesus doing. Ladies, I recommend that you reverence and honor and respect your husband. Make his will yours. That is, there's something similar that when Paul says in Philippians 2 that let that same attitude be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing and laid down his life. Paul says that should be your attitude as well. Well, if the husband's job is to lay down his life for his wife, well then reverence would indicate that she ought to be doing the same thing, that her will should be like his and be laid down on behalf of his. And this is what it means for us to be the church. It means that we are supposed to allow his will to become ours, to lay down our life for Christ. That is, if he was willing to put everything on the line for us to the point of dying on a cross, we should be willing to take up, take up our cross, crosses and follow him. To go where he goes, to be led where he leads, to embrace the path and the destiny that he has for us as a church, which will lead one day to glory, but for right now, maybe in the midst of suffering or problems or difficulties. We as a church know that when we are following after him, when his will is ours, there is nowhere we could be that is closer to him, and that is all that we need. This means that not only does she move with reverence, but she moves into holiness. Part of what Jesus does, Paul says, is that he washes his bride. He cleanses his bride. He gives her true holiness and righteousness. He brings her into an exclusive relationship with him. Just as she is the only bride that he has. She then, or he then, is the only husband that she has. She is set apart for him. And this means, thirdly, that she moves toward the bridegroom. Just as his whole attitude has been to get as close to her as possible, to do everything it takes to win her over, to lay down his life for her. She reciprocates by getting as close as she can to him. One of the most important things that we can do as a church is not only to focus on trying to do all the right things. That is not, strictly speaking, the definition of holiness. The definition of holiness is making sure that we, as a church, are making sure that our loves, our desires, our priorities are set aside entirely for Jesus Christ, for honoring him, for pursuing what he has for us. And in the process, as we draw close to him, as we put holiness and righteousness at the forefront of what we are supposed to be doing, and as we reverence him and honor him and seek to do his will, what we are going to find is that 
we as the bridegroom are going to look a lot like the bride. And that the dynamics that we are supposed to see between Christ and his church are going to be the kinds of dynamics that we increasingly see among ourselves as well. And this leads me, finally, to something of a reflection or a conclusion. We as a church, I think, have a vested interest in this living image that we see in Scripture. This image of husband and wife, Paul then takes as a kind of nucleus of what the rest of that household in Roman times ought to be. The children are supposed to obey their parents. What? Somebody fill that out. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's not just a do it for, do it because God wants you to. Children are to see in the person who is above them the face of Jesus Christ himself. And parents are supposed to look at their children and with the attitude of Jesus Christ himself, lay down their lives for their children and not exasperate them, but put their children first. This is radicalized even more when it comes to slaves and masters, something which is rightfully abhorrent to us today as an institution. But Paul says, in the midst of even that institution, slaves, you should be able to look at your, at your master and say, I will obey him as if he were Jesus Christ. Masters, you need to look at your slaves, remembering that you have a master yourself to whom you will have to give an account, and you need to look at your slaves and recognize in them your brother, to the point that Paul, when he writes to Philemon, he tells Philemon, you need to treat him like you would treat me, talking about a slave who is being returned to him. Treat him as if he were Paul of Tarsus. Whatever he has sinned against you or credit or 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 accrued in in credits, I want you to credit to his account, any er, credit to my account, anything that he owes you. I want you to treat him like you would me. This exchange, what the other 20th century theologian Charles William would have called the coherence between these people, the going back and forth, is something that should characterize us as a church. This is the kind of dynamic where we, laying down our lives for each other because Christ has laid down his life for us, should be replicated in all kinds of different ways. And I can't tell you all the different ways that that is going to have to happen. We don't live in a society in where we have slaves and masters anymore. We do have employers, and you know we do have wage labor, we have salaries. We live in a church where sometimes, at least classically in Anglicanism, there's been a very high perceived power differential between clergy and laity. Not sure if that's our dynamic here, but we have to be aware of these things and think through, given the image that we have of Christ and the church, of the bridegroom and the bride, how are we called to lay down our lives for one another as we mirror the bridegroom and be the bride? And I think this becomes important because we as a church also have a vested interest in the image of the bride and the groom insofar as the church, as society is at large, is made up of many married couples. Now I say that, and I'm looking around here, probably less than half of you are married. This is very strange for a church. Most churches that I've been a part of, it's a bunch of married people, mostly older, and they're trying to figure out how to live with their spouses after 20 years. Because you all have told the same stories, 
you know the same jokes, you know the same people, and you're trying to figure out how are we gonna, how we're gonna do the next 20 years, right? I'm looking around the room and I see a lot of people who have not yet married. Now, some of you may be dating, you got a boo, it's all very exciting, and you're thinking about these kinds of things. Some of you, that may not even be on your horizon, but my, I expect that the majority of you will end up married. And part of the question that we have, I think, as a church to consider is, how do we as a church support the married couples in our midst? Because you are the little pictures of Jesus Christ. That's not to say that single people aren't imaging that as well. There, is, there are other images in Scripture, and the image of chastity, the image of the virgin or the celibate or what have you, is hugely powerful. I'm not saying I'm, I'm speaking strictly to virgins, but the idea of I am going to live as a single person for God is a powerful image, and it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But I think even it, as much, if not more so, especially because children are involved, we have to support as a church those of you in our midst who are called to live as this particular image of Christ and the bride. And I think we need to think through that as a church. Again, don't have the time to really get into exactly how, but we should be thinking about it. And I do want to encourage you as you get into marriage. I'm looking around the room again, a lot of people who are married, more people who aren't. But let me just say, I do encourage you to take Paul's words to heart here. We don't have enough time to get into it. We're running out of time. But I will say this. Paul says a lot more to the men than to the women. Ladies, I want you to listen to what Paul says, but men, I really want you to listen to what Paul says. Lay down your lives for your wives. When the time comes, pour out your hearts. Give everything for your wife. Hold nothing back. The strength of your marriage, and not just of your marriage, but of your witness to Jesus Christ is going to depend on the extent to which you put your wife first to which, the extent to which you are willing to conform <clears throat> everything in your life to what is best for her. To the extent that we do not, as married couples, we compromise our witness to Jesus Christ. But I have better hopes for you, and I have, will keep you in my prayers. I ask that you keep me and my marriage in your prayers, and I invite us all to give praise to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.